and typically the guys uh, or girls, you know, as they're working, they know how they should be keeping safe. But what happens over time is things don't go wrong. So you just get complacent with those simple behaviors. For example, just wearing your helmet when you're on the back of the truck, right? And then what happens is that one day you do fall off the helmet, you're not wearing, you fall off the truck, you're not wearing your helmet, um, and then, you know, you really hurt your head. They'll have a serious brain injury, you know? Kia ora, I'm Troy, here as CEO, and welcome to Stirring the Pot. Thanks for connecting. If you're new, here's what you can expect. We're going to be talking the tough stuff, the things that keep us metalheads up at night. There are many challenges facing our industry and equally many opinions on how we should tackle them. Stirring the Pot provides a facilitated forum to discuss and challenge these viewpoints. So let's get to the nuts and bolts of it. Today, we're talking with Tane Vanderboon, co-founder and CEO of the Envirotech Charitable Trust, Maui 63, as well as founder and CEO of Inveal, an AI-powered health and safety solutions startup. Tane is going from strength to strength, leveraging computer vision and machine learning to enhance organizations right across the business landscape. So Tane, those that know you know that you've got a, one or two things on the go and um, I guess you've got a bit of a story to tell uh, prior to the launch of Inbeal. Um, can you just give us a bit of a rundown on kind of some of the things that you've been up to over the last few years and where some of this journey all began? Sure. Um, so I started well out of after finishing my um, after finishing uni, I started at Vulcan Steel. Um, so I was there running the IT team for about six years, and that's actually where the first prototype was developed. Um, and that's when I first sort of got excited about computer vision. So um, while I was at Vulcan, um, an idea came up to look at to see if people were varying their hivers when they're on the back of the trucks using a camera, and this was. Well, we must be going back three years now, four years now, when computer vision was just starting to come through the cracks and we're just starting to see some deep learning algorithms and seeing these possibilities. So, um, yes, I was working on this little project. It was literally a hackathon with Datacom um, and we sort of put a little prototype together that, you know, we could see a camera and we could detect if someone was wearing their hivers or not. That kind of fizzled out, um, but it did get me really excited around computer vision and it led me to Maui 63. Um, I think you know a little bit about Maui 63, but for the listeners, um, Maui 63 is a, a not-for-profit charitable trust, and we use large drones and computer vision to look for marine mammals. So when I say large drones, it's like six-meter wingspan, um, flies for about six hours, up to 140 k's an hour over the ocean, and we use computer vision um, live to look for dolphins, um, specifically the Maui dolphin, as we fly around so we can start to collect location data about where they are and where they go. So. This, yeah, sort of the idea of this computer vision platform that we built at Vulcan got me really excited. Um, and then I was literally having a beer with one of my mates. I was back at uni at that time, part-time as well, um, after class. And I um, made a promise to develop a computer vision model um, after a few beers that could detect dolphins. <laughs> so... Um, keep it, keep yeah, it low key. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, um, uh, yeah, I like to live up to my drunken promises. So... I spent the next couple of months, um, weekends in my bedroom at the time, uh, you know, drawing boxes around dolphins and starting to learn a bit around neural networks and how I could build an object detector to um, spot dolphins. Um, we built a prototype and that actually led to our funding with MPI and that's how Maui 63 got started. Um, so then I left Vulcan and Maui 63 stayed and it's still doing that and it's an ongoing project. Um, I went and built an e-commerce company with a friend selling mattresses online for two weeks. So I was doing that alongside Maui 63. 
Um, and then I, you know, really thought that I, you know, had a real passion for this computer vision and still this health and safety application that we've um, developed a prototype at Vulcan for. So I sold out of um, Winkle and um, founded MVL, and that was in February this year. Um, so yeah, off the back of that first prototype with Vulcan, um, I chatted to them and they actually came on board as our first customer and a major shareholder. And yeah, now we're looking at um, building health and safety, sort of a platform for detecting safe and unsafe behavior in the workplace um, using this computer vision and other AI and machine learning techniques. Cool. All right. So, I mean, I guess you, you sort of started to get into, into my next question in a little bit, but it might be a good time for, for us to maybe just hit pause uh, before we get into sort of the NVL product and, and a little bit of the nitty gritty in that. I mean, for those that, that don't know, can you give us like a real uh, baseline understanding of this idea of computer vision? You know, what is it um, in its simplest terms so people can kind of understand what we're talking about? Sure. Um, really, like at its simplest form, it's computers and software being able to see. So at the moment, you know, a computer can't see anything, so it doesn't know what's going on. So if you think of, you know, um, adding that ability for software to see what's going on and understand what's going on, you can write, you know, you can do lots of really cool things. So it, it's really teaching computers to see. And then I suppose what's started to accelerate that is this idea of AI and, you know, we've sort of got machine learning, which is like a, the, the first and the simpler form. So that's more when a person is teaching a machine how to see. So we're still writing the algorithms and we're labeling all the data and we're, yeah, we're, we're writing the code to determine how the computer sees. So someone has sort of thought about all the use cases and then is programming that and we sort of call that machine learning. And then we go down to sort of more deep learning, which is when we're actually looking at algorithms that work, they're called um, neural networks and they work more like the brain. So we sort of write an algorithm that um, actually learns how to see, um, you feed in data that you've told it what things are, but it actually learns how to see and identify objects as one example of neural networks on its own. So it sort of builds neurons um, similar to our brain and tunes them to understand what um, different things are. So there's, uh, there, I guess there's a little bit to unpack for people that are, are I guess, are new and unfamiliar with it, and it's kind of hard to get yep. uh, your head around. I mean, in terms of where this technology is at, um, you know, is it, is it, I guess, is it emerging, is it developing, or is it kind of, are very much a part of um, the technological landscape? I, I think both. I think there's different techniques, like some techniques, if you think of um, deep learning, are definitely emerging and new. Um, and then other techniques are starting to become more and more commonly used um, and, and quite easily and accessible for other people. So it's currently not that hard to train, a, not like a few years ago. It's relatively simple to get some data together to say, identify something. Say, I want to identify chairs. You could get, you know, 10,000 images of chairs and tell them to a data set. And then you'd have a, and it'd be quite simple for you to find a library uh, somewhere or an app on the internet to train a computer vision model to identify that. So that's, you know, becoming more and more generalized, I suppose, and used commonly. And then the other space where we're, um, I suppose it's called unsupervised learning. So we're not actually like telling the computer that's a chair. We're actually just feeding it a whole lot of data and it's working out it's a chair on its own. That stuff's very much emerging. And that's where I'd say, you know, that's more heading into the, the AI space. Nice, nice. So, I mean, you, you know, you've alluded to the fact that, um, 
there may have been uh, some some lubrication involved in your commitment to developing this uh, computer vision model um, around this health and safety. Oh, sorry, around the the Maori sixty three proposition. Um, yep. Let's. I mean, let's jump back a, a, a step. Um, I'm I'm fascinated to understand. I guess some of the thinking around arriving at uh, the I guess the AI enabled health and safety officer or computer vision model. What, what was the thinking in the lead up to going? You know what? Um, I'm going to do this because I, I think it's a it's a good idea. You know, was there were there particular drivers that were motivating you to go? I need to solve this problem. Did you kind of just see the problem and and go? This is the way to do it. We, you know, was there anything happening in the background around? I guess the lead up to to that. No, um, actually, well, it wasn't even my idea. So it was my old um, one of my old colleagues, James Wells. He's he, well, my boss at the time. Um, he was at we were at a Microsoft conference together, and he'd seen he went to the computer vision talk and was trying to think of a way to use computer vision within Vulcan to sort of experiment with this idea. And he was like, "Oh, what about how hivers on the back of trucks?" And and I think I just got really excited about this concept that computers and software could see and understand what's going on and how powerful that could be. I mean, yes, from a health and safety perspective, but from anything. And yeah, I just really love that idea that we can write software that sees that can really help people. So um, yeah, that, that's what gets me excited. Um, and that's what I really grasped onto. Nice, nice. So in terms of the product itself, um, I can imagine that there's quite a lot of development um, that needs to go into um, you know, the learning and, and, and what have you uh, for the, the product to become functional and then be able to be deployed at a, a, a in a commercial setting um, successfully. Okay. And I'd imagine that that process would be uh, doubly difficult when you're talking about the health and safety of people. That would be relatively um, high risk and you'd want to make sure that, you know, it's working right. Uh, in terms of the product as it stands, kind of where are you in that journey in terms of uh, commercial deployment? Okay, yeah, so um, so yeah, like we sort of talked about, we're, we're looking at monitoring health and safety in a, in a workplace. So um, if we think about things like not wearing a helmet or your hivers on the back of the truck or not being too close to a forklift, um, maybe carrying loads over people's heads is quite a common example. So I think all of this stuff is you know, really important to see, but I suppose for it to be an effective health and safety platform, we need to take um, complacency into account. So if we think of most risks in the workplace, right? Workplaces spend a lot of time training, building training regimes, putting processes in place. And typically the guys uh, or girls, you know, as they're working, they know how they should be keeping safe. But what happens over time is things don't go wrong. So you just get complacent with those simple behaviors. For example, just wearing your helmet when you're on the back of the truck, right? And then what happens is that one day you do fall off the helmet, you're not wearing, uh, fall off the truck. You're not wearing your helmet, um, and then you know you really hurt your head or have a serious brain injury. You know, um, worst case death, right? And these things do happen. The other example is carrying um, loads too close to people, and there's a you know a large company in New Zealand that had a death last year for this very reason. And the person that was carrying the load had been doing this for years, right? And the crane never failed. So slowly the load got closer and closer to people. That day, that time that that um, crane did fail, you know, a death occurred. So. The idea is not just using AI to detect people because that um, on its own doesn't add that much value, right? You really need a platform to develop training and hopefully remove that complacency because I don't think we're necessarily going to be real-time stop 
you know, maybe we get to the point in real time we stop whatever someone's doing and, and save them. But I think the real value is actually helping improve the health and safety training and the culture within the workplace. And then that's what's going to remove that complacency from the workplace. And things always go wrong, right? It's quite hard to stop. So when those things do go wrong, that person trips and falls off the back of the truck or the crane fails, it's no one's problem. You know, we're safe because those complacent behaviours, people have been reminded of them and removed. Um, and if we talk about how close we are to commercial deployment, um, we've deployed one to one Vulcan truck at the moment. And we're, this week we're actually deploying to three more, which is quite exciting. So the product's working quite well. Um, and then, yeah, I think um, so sort of February next year, we're hoping to do like a full scale rollout at Vulcan. And then sort of mid-June, I'm hoping we have a relatively polished product that we're actually starting to push out to the market. So at the moment, we're um, talking to other pilot customers as well. So a couple of large companies here in New Zealand around sort of, um, you know, getting on board, um, starting to understand some things they may want to detect. It might be in the warehouse, it might be on the back of a truck. Um, you know, we're, we're sort of starting to move into these different use cases now and slowly building up our library of detectors which um, can be shared across different people, right? So say you have a, um, a rule where you want, you know, you don't want anyone to be five metres away from a forklift when it's moving. Um, you know, someone else might be able to pick up that rule and apply that to their workplace as well. So, um, yeah, if there are any p um, pilot potential pilot customers listening, um, feel free to reach out. We'd love to chat. Nice, nice. Yeah, I can imagine that, yeah, there'd be a, uh, certainly uh, an exponential adding a value, the more you're able to get people on board and, and you know, cross collaborate and see those rules applied in different settings, the rules get better and more accurate and, and what have you. So yeah, definitely get in touch if uh, if you're keen to uh, uh, to have a look closer at what Tane's up to. I'm, I'm guessing that there would be, um, there'd be a number of challenges along the way, I would imagine. And, and I guess maybe um, not exclusively technical ones, obviously, you know, I mean, I'd be interested to walk through some of those technical challenges, but I'm imagining, um, you know, as you're alluding to um, before around behaviours, there could be some cultural ones as well. I mean, so far, you know, can you give us a bit of a, a, an understanding of what those barriers have looked like? Yeah, definitely. And I think, um, and it comes up more and more as we're starting to talk to new customers. Um, and I think this, you know, this big brother mentality is a problem. So we don't want to be seen by the guys as a product that's watching them all the time, if that makes sense. Um, because, you know, we want to really develop a product that's seen by the people doing the work. That's something that helps them too. Because if you don't get that right, you're going to have big pushback against the platform and the product, right? Um, and, and some companies, you know, don't care and probably rightfully so, right? They'd rather their employees be safe at work than, um, you know, be upset because they're being monitored. But, you know, I, I think it's important that we have people that want to use our product. So a lot of it then we're doing around is actually creating apps for them so they can see and manage their own stuff. It doesn't necessarily have to be escalated. If it's a simple thing like I forgot to wear my helmet, you just go, cool, yeah, I forgot to wear my helmet. Sorry, I won't do it again, right? One, that complacency, that behavior is starting to get removed because they're reminded themselves. Two, they're managing it themselves, so there's no one telling them off, which is nice. And three, that's nice for their superior health and safety manager because they don't have to tell them off either. So I think there's cool ways that we can um, make this, you know, get people involved um, and not feel as big brother. And I think privacy is a big one as well. So um, we're using edge devices, which means we've deployed an actual device into the warehouse or the truck. 
And what that means is we can do all sorts of privacy stuff around facial blurring, you know, not identifying who's who, that type of thing, um, which is really cool. And, and just making sure, you know, all the data is secure and, um, yeah, kept away from, from prying eyes. But I think the main thing to understand is also like the way we're doing it, we're not recording and everything's not being watched by a person. So if you think of Big Brother, it's actually quite different. It's just a piece of software looking for only unsafe behavior. So if nothing's going wrong and there's no unsafe behavior, no video footage is going anywhere. Yeah, yeah, and I guess that's a, that's a, a really important part for people to understand that concept of, uh, you know, things being done on the edge and the fact that that processing is all all being taken care of and you are bringing down uh, that risk of um, privacy breaches and, and, and what have you. I, I mean, are you finding that that's a story that um, p- people are buying into and is are able to wrap their heads around? Um, I think so. I mean, we probably haven't, I probably haven't dealt enough with the people on the ground, but with the guys that I am in Vulcan, um, they seem, you know, relatively comfortable with it. And I think by giving them access to what can be seen, just creating that um, transparency, right? That really opens it up. So they know what's there and know what's going on. It's not like you're getting filmed and you can't see it, which is actually quite typical of CCTV footage sort of systems. So we're hoping that, um, yeah, that really helps and helps change that mentality. But I probably haven't delved into that enough and we'll start to see as we roll out further. Yeah, nice, nice. And and then, I mean, flipping over to the technical side, I mean, I'm imagining uh, there'd be some technical challenges along the way. Is there anything that sort of you found really difficult to navigate through? Yeah, I mean, one that we're working on at the moment comes to mind and um, sort of calculating depth from a 2D image. So if you think about it, our brains are quite clever, right? And we've actually sort of built a, we call it a neural network in our minds that enables us to estimate how far something away is. So you can throw a ball and get it about right. You know, you can look at a chair and go, it's roughly two meters away. That's really hard for a computer (laughs) because it doesn't doesn't have any concept of depth, right? It's just a flat image. So um, that's something we've been working on and we've got a solution that's working quite well at the moment, but... Um, you know, there's so many different ways to do it and it's a really highly researched subject. And I suppose that's definitely on the barriers of, um, yeah, it's new. It's not old. And lots of people are doing it though, which is cool because self-driving cars, et cetera, it's important. But we're trying to do it with a single camera. So, um, so usually you can do it with multiple cameras and you can calibrate one off the other and start to do depth estimation like that. But we're trying to do it off a single camera to sort of keep that cost of deployments low and enable us to integrate with other camera systems that already exist. So, yeah, that's probably one of the biggest um, technical hurdles we face today. Anyway, mm, interesting, interesting. So, I guess um, I, you know, I want to take a second to maybe think about. All right, we, we've done a little bit of a call out to potential pilot, uh, you know, customers wanting to jump on board. Um, what I mean, what does that process look like? Because I'd imagine that there would be a range of things and a range of um, tasks that would need to be kind of completed and things implemented before you can go from, um, you know, uh, bog standard health and safety committee and person on the ground to seeing some of these devices integrated in into that process. You know, is it as simple as simply putting the device on the truck and sort of having you know come what may or is is there some some legwork that needs to be done before you can kind of get the most out of this process i think um 
Yeah, it's a good question. So we're definitely building a platform that is going to be simple. Like it, it's going to, it needs, it's going to be to the point that it's a software as a service type offering. So you can literally put your credit card online, a device would turn up, get it installed, pay your auto sparky, or install it yourself, depending on where it's going, and self configuration as well. So um, think of a drag and drop interface. So you literally, it's all built around areas and rules. So we draw an area. Let's just say um, this, you know, area on the left of this camera. Uh, when you're in that area, you must be wearing Ivis clothing, for example. You know, it's really simple um, around a drag and drop interface to get set up on your own. I think with our first sort of, um, you know, five to 10 customers, there'll be a bit of tuning to make sure everything's running right. Um, what we call that in sort of AI land is generalization of models. So, um, you know, an AI is only as good as the data you feed in. So once, and if people were in different types of high-vis clothing, different types of helmet, I mean, around the world, different ethnicities, different camera types, all of these things, over time and as we get more data from more customers, our models will be far more robust and then just work in a plug and play. So, I mean, but right now um, it would literally be, we send you a device, you get it installed, we do a little bit of configuration and then you're away. Um, it's It's pretty straightforward and by sort of mid next year, we'll get to that point where you can just do all that configuration on your own in the app yourself. So yeah, we're hoping to be as, as simple and straightforward as, as possible. Nice. And do you, I mean, do you see uh, the role of the company stepping into any of that cultural change stuff or is it you're looking to try and sort of stay relatively bookended in the, the technical solution? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think we, I think we'll have to, but it, it won't be us directly. Obviously, we can encourage it as well, and it's up to the company um, or the customer how they how they want to implement that and what they want to do. Um, and I think with larger companies, they typically actually have people that manage those types of processes, which is nice. Um, I think ideally, our situation is a um, you know a tech development house and a tech development company, and we work with other third parties that do distribution and are real experts in this area. Because I think you know there is a component, there is training. There is onboarding, there is explaining to employees that this isn't just a big brother product. And I think getting that done properly will be quite important for the rollout. Mm, mm, nice, nice. Well, I'm 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 interested because again, obviously you've 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 um you know you've got a bit of a background within the metals industry, having been at Vulcan. Um do you kind of have any thoughts around obviously, you know, your your bread and butter is the you know the product that you're developing. Um, but do you have any sort of thoughts on how this type of technology and, you know, and hopefully others um, across, I guess, the industry for um, spectrum might begin to shape that that metals, heavy engineering fabrication sector? You know, what what are you seeing as some of the possibilities um, to see things change? I um, had a little think about this this morning. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it just comes back to like, if you think of all of your tools that are on the computer, your design tools, et cetera, imagine if they could see what the output is and then how designs and things could be automated and changed on their own to better get close to, you know, the desired requirement. So I think it just comes back to, you know, being able to see, um, be able to compare actual outputs to um, what the design was, look for areas of improvement, design changes, but you know, in an automated fashion, right? Using neural networks to get to a point you could literally type in what you want and it does that drawing for you. Um, and then maybe something prints it, it looks at it, tests it itself and, and really starts to iterate on its own as well. You know, 
I think the possibilities are quite endless in that space. Yeah, it's interesting, eh? And it's also, I guess, you know, at its core, uh, uh, computer vision and, and those types of models, they're not polite. You don't have to necessarily, uh, <laughs> you, don't, you don't have to wade, wade through nuance or people not telling you how things actually are. It kind of, I guess, no. there's, an, there's an honesty to it. And it is what it is. You see what you see. And I guess it, it has an uncanny way of uh, holding people to account along the way as well. It's interesting. Interesting. Um, I guess, you know, stepping out a little bit from that questioning and maybe going to a, a, a slightly more macro um, question, you're obviously someone, again, who eats, drinks, breathes, lives, sleeps um, technology and is kind of, um, again, very invested in that world. I mean, in terms of the world at large, what are the, what are the things that you're paying the most attention to? What are the things that you're keeping the closest eye on uh, as far as those things that are going to really have a step change around how we do business, how we do life, or, you know, all of those kinds of things? I think, um, I mean, the biggest ones at the moment is that unsupervised learning that I talked to um, earlier. So that ability to, you know, learns uh, an algorithm to learn something on its own without someone giving it inputs. Um, you know, that space is crazy right like if it starts to you know we've got computer vision for example identifying objects completely on their own you know you just feed it you know let's say a million images and it starts to pick out objects on its own obviously come up with its own names and things for them but you know you add that you know a little bit of access to the internet for example and it's doing image searching and it actually what it is as well you know so now these you know this is becoming more and more common and people are doing this more and more so i think unsupervised ai learning is definitely a hot space to watch and the other one that really interests me um not related to my work is like you know the concept of surveillance capitalism so you know these big companies with these algorithms that you know know what we want next because of all these different data points and how complex these are getting um I find it really interesting and maybe a little bit scary at the same time because of the ability to manipulate the way we're thinking. So, um, yeah, just a different space that I um, yeah like to hear about and learn about. And yeah, I think the possibilities are endless in a good way and you know maybe in a bad way too. So, well, that was I guess that was going to be the follow up is is that you know um, thinking about those things you know do, do they excite you or do they scare you? I'm I'm, I'm guessing it's probably a bit of both. <laughs> Yeah, it's definitely a bit of both. And I, I think, um, you know, ethics in the space and having the right people, you know, developing this technology and having, you know, some sort of governance over it is, is really important. And, and, you know, government stepping up in this space now is really important before these things get too complex. And, yeah, it's just about, I mean, I, I think it's the right people and having the right reasons for using these technologies rather than the wrong ones. Um, and that's kind of always the case with everything, right? So... Um, yeah, it really excites me. And yeah, there's obviously a little bit of um, being scared. And it's just us making the right choices of how to use these technologies, right? The right governance, et cetera, being in place. Yeah, yeah. I guess it's that belief. Do we, yeah, do you have a, 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 a philosophical belief that humanity can do the right thing or the wrong thing with these tools? <laughs> I, 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 I do, maybe far too, um, it, yeah, it bites me far too often as well, but hey, I'd much rather believe in people and yeah, people wanting to do the right thing than the wrong. Exactly, far, yeah. Optimism is, is, a, is an admirable trait, I'm sure, I'm sure. I live a happier life. I live a happier life because of it anyway. So. <laughs> nice. Um, I guess to wrap things up, um, I mean, what's what's next? You know, you've um, you've... 
you've got this uh, not-for-profit doing great things in terms of uh, conservation of you know endangered species. You've got this really exciting uh, proposition and around uh, workplace health and safety using computer vision. You know, what's what's next? What what does the next uh, three to five years look like for for Tane? And um, yeah, is there anything else coming down the down the pipeline? No, I think we're good enough, luckily. Um, <laughs> no, I think main focus is you know really launching NBL properly next year. I'm really excited to do that um, and start to bridge that gap into international markets. You know, bringing deep tech and deep safety tech. Um, from New Zealand to the world, that would be really cool. Um, Australia is an obvious first um, chance, and we'll be going there with Vulcan anyway, which is nice. But then, I mean, the US markets, especially from trucking and health and safety, are huge opportunities and Europe. So, I think, you know, um, if we can achieve some sort of global um, exports of the NBL, that would be really exciting. So, that's what we'll be pushing for. And then with Maui 63, um, you know, right now, I'm really working hard to get the project and the team um, self sufficient from an operational perspective, and so we can get to a point where we're doing continuous monitoring and hopefully expanding to doing monitoring for all sorts of other marine mammals. And, you know, um, we're going to open source everything and all of our technology there as well. So maybe bringing in other communities from around the world. Um, we'll be talking about the EU with some projects with the drone in Antarctica and things like that as well. So hopefully um, just expanding that and sort of sharing that with the rest of the world and showing, you know, some really good and positive applications for this type of technology as well. And then after that, I have no idea. So there you go. Thanks for joining our conversation with Tane today. If you'd like to connect more with him, you'll find his details in the show notes. Today's conversation reminds me that when done properly, it's technology's job to augment and improve our environment and workforce rather than replace it. Like Steve Jobs once said, technology is nothing. What's important is that you have a faith in people, that they're good and smart, and if you give them the tools, they'll do wonderful things with them. Food for Thought 2, we'll see you next time. So hit subscribe, and if you like what you've heard today, please like, review, or share with any metalheads you know. Let's spread the word. At Hera, we're committed to helping our membership leverage technology to build and embed ongoing resilience into their organization. At the core of this is Industry 4.0, To find out more about our Industry 4.0 cluster and the other ways Hera is supporting our industry, head to our website. The link is in the show notes.